Hello, welcome to Nerd vs. Nerd, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of nerd culture with politics and identity. I'm Mike. And I'm Anjali. And today we're going to be talking about X-Men The Dark Phoenix. This movie just came out uh, about a week ago. Uh, wasn't very good. <laughs> I mean, wow, Mike, fine. you're already jumping ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got to banter a little bit. So, <laughs> okay, so... The Dark Phoenix movie uh, is the adaptation of the X-Men, st- X-Men storyline, The Dark Phoenix Saga, from 1980. Uh, it was written by Chris... The comic was written by Chris Claremont and drawn by John Byrne in Uncanny X-Men 129 to 138. The original comics had t- the traditional themes of outsiders and marginalized uh, people, but it also had themes of women's liberation and empowerment. Uh, originally, Jean was a token female character to be fought over and to be rescued, but with the start of the Phoenix Saga, she becomes an incredibly powerful mutant. And so this movie uses the same characters, but tells a slightly different story because of limitations to the medium and possibly limitation to the writer and director's talent. Certainly. And with that in mind, so the director of this movie is Simon Kinberg, a longtime writer and producer of many X-Men movies, but this is his first time as the director, and unfortunately, I think you can definitely tell that this is a first-time directorial debut. (laughs) Um, And this is also ostensibly the final Fox X-Men movie, given Disney's acquisition of 21st Century Fox which gives Disney the film rights to X-Men, as well as Deadpool and Fantastic Four, among other properties. But it's also important to note that this is not the first time that this Dark Phoenix storyline has been explored in a movie. So in X-Men The Last Stand, uh, they deal with sort of uh, Jean Grey coming into these powers. But I was really looking forward to seeing these characters with these actors get involved with this storyline. And I was hopeful that, you know given sort of the poor reception of X-Men The Last Stand, that there would be, you know, an impetus to make this movie really, really good and to sort of, you know, redeem themselves. But to get into my review of the movie without going into spoiler territory, I just feel like there's a really obvious basic checklist this movie fails to complete. And I haven't read a lot of the X-Men comics, most of them, but... I know enough to know that this is one of the most important storylines in X-Men history. And this movie just makes it feel so small and so mundane. In particular, this is supposed to be a story with cosmic consequences. But we never see Jean go full fireboard. Well, firebird. Wow. Really can't talk today. Um, And we never really see her go into space except for the very beginning of the movie when they all go to, to rescue the astronauts. But that said, I did appreciate the premise and some of the performances in the film. But overall, I felt like this was a messy and dull film and it didn't really do much for me. The film didn't make me angry or anything, but it was just very bland. Uh, Nothing really happens, even though the movie sets up Jean Grey's character as this new threat that could completely dismantle the world that Charles Xavier has tried to build and just the world in general. And she does anger some of the characters. But I was expecting this movie to be a lot darker and really wrestle with the complexity of Jean Jean Grey trying to control her power and other people trying to harness it. Mike, how about you? What did you think of the movie? (laughs) I mean, you know, I said at the beginning that it wasn't very good. And I mean, 
that's that's mostly true like it's it's fine you know it's a, it's a lower tier mcu movie you know i was saying it's better than thor the dark world i don't necessarily think that's true anymore but it's about that level you know it's did you fall asleep in thor the dark world I, I did not fall asleep in Thor The Dark World like I did in The Dark Phoenix. So I guess that alone right there uh, tells us, you know, how how uneventful uh, this movie was. Um, I think that's the best, like, that's the best word for it. First of all, you were not the only person asleep in our theater. So. Oh, really? No, you weren't. Um, second of all, like... We saw this movie a week ago, and it, we saw it, and that was it. And I have not thought about it since mm-hmm. then, except for the purposes of recording this episode. It just it just happened, and it just, like, washed over. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the way it was leading up to the movie, too, because this is the last X-Men property, or the last X-Men film from Fox Studios, or 20th Century Fox, and... Mm-hmm. They're like, well, these characters are going to be going to the MCU, so there's no real stakes there, which is unfortunate because this is a really important, you know, uh, you know, story that's told in the X-Men, and it just dropped the ball so hard. And so maybe maybe that accounts for its poor weekend at the box office. Maybe a lot of people <laughs> just figured, oh, well, this is going to get rebooted. Like, I don't have. To I worry. mean, like, we hope so, but. Now, there's already two movie adaptations of the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, is Marvel really going to do it again? But that's the thing. The stakes are so low. So why not just just, go crazy with it? You literally have nothing to lose. This is it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... They spent $200 million on this movie. So I don't want to hear that they didn't have a budget. I want to know where the hell that money went. (laughs) It went to reshooting the entire third act of the movie. I mean, they probably should have spent more money on that third act of the movie then. Uh, but <laughs> so I mean, if you're looking for any sort of recommendation, the way we've been talking about it is not a good recommendation for the movie. You know, there, but there are like better things to spend twelve dollars on. There are worse things too. So if you're bored and you like comic book movies, mm. go see it. Mm-hmm. But if you're bored and you like comic book movies, you've probably already seen it. See, I care about people. I care about your wallet. <laughs> You can just wait till this comes out on streaming at the end of the year and you can put it on in the background while mm-hmm. you're doing something else and then you you can say that you saw it. But fair enough. Okay. So <laughs> that is the end of our spoiler-free discussion of the movie. We are going to be t- talking about the movie in depth <laughs> now. There will be lots of lots of spoilers from here on out so if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to be spoiled stop listening now i will say there's not much really happened so there's really not that much to spoil in fact you know the one big thing that i think you could spoil they showed in the trailers so unless a person just they okay well now we're spoiling i mean yeah we get the warning they showed um mystique's death in the trailers or they they strongly Oh. They, they they like in the very first trailers they strongly alluded to it huh i mean it shows you how much i was paying attention to the trailer and how excited i was for the movie leading up to it i don't uh, yeah i don't i don't people who were sort of following like at least who had seen the trailers were not surprised by that um, i don't think it was even intended to be a surprise right. if anything i thought they teased it in the trailer to sort of make you think that the stakes were really high in this movie uh, um, okay 
Um, but aside from that, I don't really know what there is to spoil for people. Well, like, I mean, seriously. we want to be polite and give the warning anyway. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we're going to follow the same general format that we've talked about uh, with other um, stories or movies that we've watched and talked about. Uh, we're going to start off with things that we liked. Uh, I think the first thing for me anyway, uh, so Brian Singer, uh, he directed multiple of the other X-Men movies. I think he did Apocalypse. Uh, he may have done Days of Future Past, but I'm not sure. I know he did uh, X, uh, X-Men, X2, and X3. Uh, but anyway, he is an accused trash bag human being, and I don't like trash bag human beings getting paid, and he's not the director, so yay for that, I guess. Um... I like the actors in this movie. Uh, you know, Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence, and Sophie Turner, <laughs> they're way too good for this franchise. You know, there's at least one Oscar winner in that group. And, you know, that was that's Lawrence. You know, and I felt like she in particular was phoning it in for a oh, lot yeah. of the movies, and especially, like, I think parts of this one. But, like, she's still an Oscar winner, so even when she's half-assing it, she's still better than almost anyone else on screen. What's really funny is I think her best scene in this movie is where she's uh, telling off Charles when they uh-huh. come back from their mission. And <laughs> the thing is, I don't... She's, like, really angry and irritated in that scene, her character is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the reason... Like, the emotion comes through in that scene is because I think she's just angry and irritated in general about being in this movie. So she channeled it into that <laughs> scene, and it's, like, very convincing. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> who can who can blame her? You know, I, I'm pretty sure after the first one, she was like, what did I get myself into? Because First Class came out in 2011, I think. And that was before she be, was really like a you know a movie star. Yeah, she she wasn't in a place to be turning down. Yeah, and so she she takes this role, and all of a sudden she blows up, and she's you know a, you know a bonafide movie star, and she's like, I have to go do this movie, and I have to do this prosthetic makeup. Like she couldn't have been happy about that. Um, um, but yeah, I agree with you. I thought the the main actors did a really good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I, I can't even imagine how much more terrible this movie would have been. What if you had had like bad actors? Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. I think. I mean, yeah. The issue is the material that they're given. Their yeah. performances are good. It's not. It's not very good at all. Um, so I know you like the premise of the other movie. I think you talked about that a little bit in the in the intro and then spoiler-free discussion. You want to go into that a little yeah. bit more? So I think I've heard some people say they like they like the movie and I think especially in the first act they set it up they set up a really interesting premise. This idea that Jean, you know, just at a time when the X-Men are finally starting to be accepted and celebrated by humankind and you know Charles is excited um, this is sort of what he's been building toward. And now all of a sudden Jean is really powerful and that sort of threatens, you know, this, this world that Charles is trying to build. And it also sort of divides the X-Men. They sort of have these different camps about, should we be following Charles blindly? You mm-hmm. know, maybe we should, you know, maybe he's has ulterior motives. You know, they sort of find out about what he did to Jean when she was little and suppressed her memories. 
And I think that's all really interesting. And then too, when you even see uh, Jean go to Magneto, um, and and then you then you see Hank go to Magneto, and just and even just Magneto's world, what he has going on. I think all of that was. Oh man, okay, these yeah. are some interesting things. I want to see what they do with Genosha, this. They and they don't even name it. Like Exactly. Such uh, But all these things, I was like, "Oh, yeah, I want to know more about this Genosha. I want to more I want to, you know, see these characters sort of call Charles out mm-hmm. and how he deals with that. Um and I want to see what they think they should do about Jean. Um and yeah, so all of that I thought was really promising. And I think if people like the movie, it's because they set up some potentially interesting, you know, challenges for our characters to work through. But they just never really, they never really tackle them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all these things they set up, set up in the first act, it, like, it doesn't really progress. It's yeah. like, okay, what are we going to do about Jean? That's the whole movie. What are we going to do? You know, Jean in the beginning of the movie, she's like, oh my God, like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. And she's that way the whole movie. It's... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what? Uh, tell me about the line Cyclops has. <laughs> Wait, no, not which one? No, you mean Magneto? No, you, like Cyclops said one thing in the entire movie. Jean. Oh, Gene, Gene! <laughs> yes, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were getting at <laughs> my favorite line in the movie, which is unintentionally funny, is when you know Magneto first encounters Charles, and he's like, "You always have a speech." And nobody cares anymore. And and again, I think that's similar to, you know, uh, Jennifer Lawrence when Mm -hmm. she's pissed off at Charles. And I think it's just Jennifer Lawrence being pissed off. I think that is Michael Fassbender (laughs) being pissed off. And it's just like, oh, my God, this same, the same dialogue every single time. I'm sick of it. (laughs) So we spent a lot of time talking about Gene. And that brings me like to the next thing that I liked about the movie. I thought Sophie Turner did a good job as Jean Grey slash the Phoenix. You know, she has this presence on screen that makes her believable as ostensibly a star system destroying cosmic force. I mean, it could be that she's just like six feet tall and just like, is just like, just like towers over everyone on set. You know, that could be part of it. But like, I think she's a good actress anyway. Um, It's just too bad that, the writing let her down so hard. I agree. I thought though that she she worked really well with the material they gave her. I thought she handled um, Sophie Turner handled her character's mood swings really well. Um, you know, there's there's a number of scenes, especially a scene where she visits her father, and you see her go through a range of emotions. She's you know she's so glad to see her father and reconnect with him. Then she has this realization that he resents her and blames her for her mother's death and you see her sort of shift between these different emotions all in one scene and she does a really good job and honestly my favorite parts of the movie were sort of seeing her you know her emotions like suddenly shift and she gets angry that was for me the most interesting part of it yeah um yeah i think that like sort of like ties back into the sort of like the women's liberation themes that were in the comics you know uh, the the comics came out in 1980, the tail end of like the the second women's rights movement, you know, where women are taking jobs out of the home and like they're they're organizing and you know being activists and stuff, you know, so like they have more power, you know, and so I think that was part of the the themes in the comics where these women have more power, like what how how is the world gonna react to it, um, and I. Think 
the way the world reacted when it happened and just like freaking out, you know, oh my God, the world's ending, our society's collapsing is kind of well represented in this movie too, where like they went from, we need to help Gene to Gene's got to die real quick, like on, like on a dime almost. Um, Yeah. And not only that, but Gene's the harm, the little bit of harm she causes in this movie is enough to sort of have the, the federal government say mm-hmm. that we sort of need to round up yeah the mutants yeah uh-huh. <laughs> yeah and uh yeah we'll, we'll we'll talk about more we'll talk a little bit more about the uh the like, like the results of that uh when we talk about things we don't like um but i also like the the phoenix special effects uh we talked about well, I mean, I think it's pretty common knowledge that this movie got delayed because of Captain Marvel and that the endings oh, were... No, no one has come out and said Captain Marvel. Another superhero movie. It was Captain Marvel. Let's not well, get us. Okay. <laughs> I agree. I'm just... Yeah, no, you're, you're right. But I mean, so they thought that the third acts for both movies were, were too similar. And rumor is that you know, the Disney execs were like, no, you need to redo this. And like it was a... Like it was a uh, an order from from Disney to to do that. Uh, but speaking, I, I of, wish we could have gotten that ending. You know, even if it was similar, right. it would have been better than what it we must, got. It had to have been because it was originally written instead of like hastily thrown together or hastily thrown together. Um, Sidebar: What's interesting is that the third act of the movie does feel like a different movie. It totally feels, you know. I've seen people say that they weren't aware that they're of the extensive reshoots of the third act going into the movie and they mm. watch it and they're like, yeah, this does feel like it did feel like a separate movie because it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like tacked on. Uh, but like speaking of, of Captain Marvel, I really like the Phoenix special effects, but they were very similar to the Captain Marvel, like photon blast special effects, like when she's <laughs> flying and everything. Um, like, Another sidebar. I really like some of the special effects coming out of comic book movies. So like Captain Marvel special effects, the Phoenix special effects, the like the Thor effects when he like lightnings up yeah. and you know, like the sort of like lightning arcing over his face. I mm-hmm. like those a lot. So I don't know. Maybe I, like, I don't think it's as big a jump in special effects technology as like say Star Wars, but I still like it. You know. <laughs> um, I also like Michael Fassbender a lot as Magneto. He was probably my favorite actor slash character in this entire franchise, except for maybe Raven. Um, so I really liked her arc over the course of the four movies, like the way she like changed, grew, and adapted, which I guess is kind of the point because like it's all about like her her power is all about adapting. Um, but yeah, like I still like Michael Fassbender a lot too. Just his presence on screen. Yeah, he he sort of grounds these movies because mm-hmm. he's he's very principled. You sort of always know where he stands, and so every time he appears on screen, you sort of you know you know what his position is, and I I kind of like that. Um, yeah, like I not, was I was relieved when he showed up in this movie. I was like, oh good, like yeah. not to get ahead of ourselves, but uh, yeah, his sort of straightforward knowing where you stand, you kind of respect that as opposed to Charles who just annoyed me a lot so i mean yeah I, I mean i don't think you're in the minority with that opinion <laughs> I charles mean, I th- was kind of the worst in this movie yeah i mean i think that was sort of part of this movie is like oh we're gonna make charles a jerk but i think 
he was unintentionally made a jerk over the course of the entire franchise. I think he's kind of always been a jerk. He's always been, at least in, in these movies, he's just, he's just a rich, privileged white dude. And he acts like it, you know, like he's like, he, like he doesn't realize like how, how lucky he is. You know, he argues with Raven about it all the time, you know, and she's just like, no, like you, you don't know what it's like. Like you can just be a normal person. I can't, you know. And I don't think he recognizes. He doesn't like, listen to anyone. Yeah. I mean, you especially see that in this movie with mm-hmm. multiple characters who try to sort of call him out on various mm-hmm. things, and he just doesn't want to hear it. And so he's a white dude. Incredibly frustrating. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but speaking of Charles and Eric, they finally went on their date at the end of the movie. Yay! Very cute. <laughs> They had their coffee and played their game of chess. I was invested more in that romance than I was in Gene and Scott, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Just, uh, we can talk about the Gene and Scott romance at some other point when we when <laughs> a, another X-Men movie comes up. Uh, yeah. So we've been talking about things we don't like. And we have more. <laughs> <laughs> so, you want to start us off? I just feel, I feel bad because we're like totally just pooping on this movie but the, first of all they made it way too easy to poop on this movie mm-hmm. and i get that there's some things we always say that you sort of have to suspend disbelief but and i mean i was sort of on autopilot for most of this movie but when i would really stop and think about something that's happening so in the beginning of the movie they're going to space i understand that the x-men go to space in the comics but in as far as these movies when when have they gone to space right. and even they sort of the characters in the movie sort of make fun of it which i guess is the writer's way of sort of like writing themselves out of this corner where they're like wait a minute i've got a whole bunch of questions and mystique is like well we don't have time and it's like really we don't have time mystique this is like an almost two-hour movie i think we can find some time to explain this a little more this is not a 30-minute tv show right. uh so i was like what the heck they're go- and then there's little things too where it's like okay they go into space and then at one point they give nightcrawler a helmet why does he need a helmet and no one else needs a helmet? Why did I don't understand? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about the help whole, me understand. It, I, look, I wish I could help you understand. Be, but I don't understand because the like maybe this is just me, but the the basic science in this movie, like especially in in space, you know. Okay, so first off. There's no heat in a vacuum. You need you you need air to to like measure heat, measure temperature. So this whole like oh the heat signature spike like shut up now, uh, <laughs> you know. And then the malfunctioning like rocket on the shuttle that's causing it to spin. There's no friction in space. Like there's nothing slowing it down. So it would be constantly accelerating. So those astronauts inside that shuttle would at the very least be unconscious because of the g-forces if not outright killed and just just destroying that booster like scott does that wouldn't stop because it would keep spinning or the maybe the trajectory would change because of the explosion but it wouldn't suddenly stop spinning uh you know and then look there's no water in space Storm cannot seal this shuttle with ice. It does. She can't do it. It just doesn't. So there's two takeaways here. They are leaning very heavily into the fiction <laughs> aspect of science fiction, and also 
Mike is really smart, everyone. Yay. Claps. I mean... Claps I, for Mike. This, this is how I fake it. Uh, you had some thoughts on the, on the aliens. Yes. Again, they, they make it so easy for, for us to be critical of this. It almost seems like this is obvious and I don't need to say it, but the aliens were horrible. They were just really throwaway. I personally didn't care at all about this entire storyline. I feel like the director and the rest of the team was like, okay, what is the least amount of work we can do to put aliens in this movie? So I know we'll, we'll have them look like humans and basically their distinguishing features. They talk in a super monotone voice. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess they, they blew the whole budget on reshoots for the third act. So they couldn't really, you know, get more prosthetics. <laughs> exactly. I mean, um, they, I mean, they killed mystique, you know, 20 minutes into the movie. It's surely they had some <laughs> makeup budget left over. Uh, one of my favorite reviews of this movie said the hardest thing that Jessica Chastain had to do in this movie is walk in six inch heels. That was it. She's just talk. She's standing around talking in his monotone voice, mm-hmm. but she has to walk in really high heels. And that's kind of probably her biggest challenge with this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, aside from their appearance, they spend like all of two minutes in this movie on sort of the backstory of the aliens and their motivation. And mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, yeah. you really don't care about these aliens. Why should I care? They're just, they're basically disposable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've seen people say, well, maybe they should have, you know, broken this movie up into two movies. So <laughs> Imagine two movies of this but... garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so that they could have fleshed that out more, but no. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, now you're going to contradict yourself from a few minutes ago where you no, praised no, the, no, the special said, effects in comic book movies. I explicitly said that I like the, uh, the Phoenix special effects. The non-Phoenix special effects are terrible. Mm-hmm. So, like, Storm's Lightning in the third act. Like, I felt like I was watching Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I'm sorry, no. Uh, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> you know, where the the Emperor is, like, shocking Luke, you know, with his, <laughs> with his lightning and everything. That's how bad Storm's Lightning was. That's a pretty that damning was... critique. Hmm? Yeah, right? Like, that movie's 30 years old. More than. And... It's so, uh, and then other parts of the final fight scene, they were like sort of like really jerky. They have like this really sort of like stop motion claymation, like animation feel to them. And it's just, it's just terrible. And it's, it was, but in the context of this movie, it's so much better than the rest of the movie that you sort of overlooked those things because, well, at least the characters are actually doing something. Um, I liked Cyclops Optic Blast. Yeah, those are cool. That's, you know? That like, was about the it. The choreography of the final fight scene is is fine. It's pretty good. It's just the effects are just awful. And it, it really makes you wonder where where that $200 million went. You know? <laughs> I want an audit. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, next, give Storm something to do other than make ice that's all <laughs> she had like, that was disrespectful yeah she did like two things well three things in the movie one she sealed the shuttle two she made some ice cubes for scott at the party and three she said they need to kill gene <laughs> when they came back from uh the funeral like that's all she did and threw on some like horrendous lightning like she really deserves so much she can than that. control the weather 
I know. She's one of the best X-Men. She's one of the coolest X-Men uh, characters in the comics. You know, like she started off as being worshipped as a weather goddess. And this is what she's fallen to. <laughs> this is what they do with her. You know, like I just hope that when they introduce mutants to the MCU, they introduce Storm as like a love interest for T'Challa. Because I or think that would be... Just give her her own standalone movie. I would be okay we with that, too. We all want it. Yeah. And, you know, they haven't really done anything with her character up until now in the movie, so... Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Blank slate, basically. Yeah, right? Like, just just skip the origin. Just, like, go into Storm being badass. That's what I want to happen. Um, do you have anything else on Storm? I mean, no. Like you said, she didn't do much in this movie, so no. I don't I don't have anything to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, next... Guys, writers, male writers, I one request, <laughs> one request. Stop fridging your female characters. Knock it off. <laughs> like, just, it, it essentially happened twice in this movie. Like, Raven gets fridged. Like, that is a clear-cut case of fridging, you know? And then charles taking away gene's memories like that's taking away her agency which is basically the same thing i mean on a very meta level mystique herself says the women are always saving the men around here Uh so it's like she sort of has this commentary about the fact of how the 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 women are being Mm -hmm. treated (laughs) yeah and so like every time charles said he was wrong or expressed some sort of personal growth I just wanted to, like... Wait, Charles said he was wrong in this movie? At, at some point he did. He had, I, I think in, well, in that speech at the end where he, like, gets Hank and Magneto back on his side, like, that he admitted that he was wrong somewhere in that speech. But the point is, like, F off, Charles. Like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, Charles is kind of the worst in this movie. Um... Inability to admit that he's wrong. He's very self-interested. Doesn't respond well to criticism. Yeah. 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 I mean, the men in general are pretty terrible in this movie. So here's like a non-definitive list of men being awful. You know, Charles having the team risk their lives to save that last astronaut. Charles condescending to Raven when she calls him out. Charles interfering with Jean's memories. Hank disregarding uh, Raven's feelings and ideas about uh, leaving the school. Gene's dad being a jerk. Magneto sending Gene away. Hank and, Ma- Hank and Magneto wanting to kill Gene. And know. in this way, art imitates life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Speaking of art imitating life, <laughs> I said that I like Fassbender as Magneto, and I do, but Eric Lencher is peak mediocre white dude. He's killed dozens, if not hundreds of thousands of people over the course of this franchise. And he's still free. He's still walking free. He's the leader of a mutant colony, right? You know, this is some serious failing upwards garbage. Meanwhile, Jean flips a couple of cop cars and she's got to die. Like, what what is Simon Kinberg thinking? What is he doing? Blue lives matter. (laughs) I mean, white dude's going to white dude, I guess. Like, so... Yeah, uh, I think, is, is that all of our thoughts on the movie? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, if people weren't aware that this episode was in fact a test of Mike's understanding of misogyny 
and racism. So good job. That was. I passed. You passed. <laughs> Give me my gold star. You um, get two gold stars. Woo. Right. So those are our thoughts on the movie. Generally bad. Uh, uh, frankly, I'm amazed that we had this much to say about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we planned on talking about the X-Men in general. Uh, because the X-Men have a rich and like storied history in comics. Uh, they've been very popular. Uh, they were one of the first successful comic book movies because that's how much people enjoyed it. Um, and so we wanted to, to talk about the, the history of the X-Men, you know, the origins, um, you know, like what, like what they're about. And so I think it's important to preface uh, this whole discussion by saying comics have always been political. You know, Superman was created by first generation Jewish immigrants. And you see that sort of like reflected in Superman's story. You know, he's always an outsider. Um, the first Captain America cover was Captain America punching Hitler in the face, you know, and this is a tradition that continues with, with the X-Men when they first appeared in 1963. You know, Stanley has stated outright that the X-Men were meant to be an allegory for the civil rights movement, you know, and Stanley himself was very outspoken about the dangers of racism and bigotry. Uh, Chris Claremont, the probably the, the most famous writer uh, in, in X-Men history, uh, he was an immigrant from, from England and he spoke about how he viewed the X-Men as sort of like archetypical outsiders and used them to tell stories of like anti-bigotry and like pro-tolerance, you know. And then the aforementioned Brian Singer sort of expanded this metaphor to include homosexuality explicitly in the, the first or second movie. Mm-hmm. Like one of, the, one of the mutants' mothers was like, have you tried just not being a mutant? Right. Which, mm-hmm. I mean, Singer's a trash bag, but that's kind of a funny line. Mm-hmm. Um. Sure. Yeah, I, I I would totally agree with all of that. I I think if you ask most sort of female comic book fans or even non-white comic book fans about their favorite comic comics, mm-hmm. people will usually say the X Men, and I think that's something that's really special about this um, franchise is how it's been able to sort of be an umbrella for a lot of sort of marginalized uh, people. And even though I think X-Men is most strongly sort of associated with sort of um, the challenges that racial minorities in the United States and gay people in the United States sort of, you know, the oppression that they and marginalization that they experience, what I appreciate, which can be, I mean, well, what I also, what I appreciate and also sort of have a criticism of is that, you know, they have sort of set up. How do I say this? They set it up so that it can really be an umbrella for all marginalized groups. So anyone who just feels different in any type of way, whether they're sort of experiencing oppression or they just, you know, maybe they're being bullied. They feel like they don't really fit in. They don't really belong in a particular environment. The idea that, you know, this is a comic for you. This is about people who are different. And I appreciate that because it sort of invites everyone in and it sort of recognizes various forms of difference but i also think and i mean we can get into this a little more later that with all of that said when you look at the actual x-men characters 
most of them are white men, at least the, the main ones. And so it's sort of an interesting dynamic here that at once these characters that are meant to be a vehicle for telling stories about being different, being marginalized, being oppressed, sort of take the form of sort of the most privileged group in our society. Mm-hmm. And so, which we'll talk about more, maybe it's strategic, um, but I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So the X-Men sort of started off as an allegory for the civil rights movement in the United States. And I think this this metaphor breaks down in a few subtle but significant ways. You know, first, honestly, mentioned um, you took two icons of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and like you turn them into white men. Like that in and of itself is... It's not a good luck, you know, but then I think there are a few changes that try and sort of whitewash these two men and the narrative of the civil rights movement to make it more accepting to a largely white audience. Uh, For example, Professor X is analogous to MLK. You know, Charles has a dream like that's like that's pretty ham fisted right there. But like that's the that's the comparison being made. You know, and Charles believes in in nonviolence and peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants. But here's the thing. Martin Luther King was a radical. You know, uh, Charles is not. You know, Charles thinks just by being nice and polite and nonviolent and educating mutants and just magically they'll be accepted. Like, MLK believed in direct action. You know, peaceful and nonviolent, but direct action nonetheless. Um, you know, so here's an excerpt from Letters from a Birmingham Jail. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the presence, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. So in short, Charles Xavier is a white moderate. Well, yes. He also has superpowers that, you know, MLK did not have. And he he has access to all of these, you know, incredible wealth and resources. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, the metaphor sort of collapses in another, in a number of ways. And I think, you know, people tend to fixate on the one way in which they might be similar to each other and ignore all the ways in which they're different. And I think that's just not really fair to, you know, a balanced discussion about the merits of this metaphor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we contrast... Uh, that with Magneto, who I think is sort of used as a straw man. So Malcolm X is, I think he's often portrayed as being a violent man. And he he wasn't. Like, he was, like, strident and outspoken in his views, uh, you know, and he believed in segregation because he didn't think peaceful coexistence was possible, not necessarily because he believed in, like, black supremacy, you know, But to the best of my knowledge, he never advocated the idea that black people were the superior race, nor did he advocate initiating violence. He simply believed that when threatened with physical violence, black people should respond with physical violence. You know, whereas Magneto often wanted to turn the world into a place where mutants were first class citizens, you know, and leaders and controlled the world, and everybody else was just a second class citizen. You know, and sometimes he just straight up 
advocated for or, you know, perpetrated genocide, you know, and neither of these are accurate representations of Malcolm X's views. So I think it's really important to sort of, you know, point out those inaccuracies because the reality is, you know, sort of this, this, this oversimplification of MLK and Malcolm X's perspectives, as well as sort of this false dichotomy of MLK versus Malcolm X is something we see not only in this sort of allegory with the X-Men, but we see it in our pop culture. We see it in our society at large, whether it's, you know, the way that we're, you know, the, the civil rights movement is taught to us in elementary school to all types of sort of iconography that we see, you know, throughout society and, you know, selective, you know, tweeting of quotes out of context and things like that. So, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is something we sort of do within our culture. We simplify these figures and we sort of misrepresent them for, you know, particular reasons to make them more palatable to mainstream audiences to sort of de-radicalize people. Um, And so, but I think it is important to point this out and to have this conversation within the context of the X-Men as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk more about Magneto. So, when X-Men first started, he was sort of like a one-note villain. Like, he believed in mutant supremacy and wanted to control the world and all that stuff. And then it was it was Chris Claremont who sort of created Magneto's origin. And so if you don't know, Magneto is an Auschwitz survivor. You know, he survived the Holocaust. You know, and by giving Magneto that backstory, Claremont sort of added, you know shades of gray to his characters you you see why he's as angry as he is and why like and why he's as scared as he is because like he's like i've seen i've seen the results of you know oppression and you know this idea of of racial superiority i think he doesn't sort of like see the contradiction you know (laughs) when he espouses his own beliefs but like you you sort of see where he's coming from and what with that sort of that that change to his origin, it you could argue that it it moves Magneto away from being a Malcolm X sort of um, analogy. I don't necessarily think that's the case because I mean, the, like Malcolm X believes in like sort of like repatriating uh, black people back to Africa. At least he espoused that view at one point, you know. And then there's like the back to Africa movement in the in the 1800s with Marcus Garvey. So. I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to to say like he still represents that sort of idea, especially with the uh, with 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 Genosha. Like this is this is a mutant country, only mutants can be here. Mm-hmm. But then with that with Genosha, well, well I'm, oh sorry, not to cut you off. Oh, so like with with Genosha uh, being like the mutant country, you know, and Me- Magneto being Jewish, like there's like a, a direct line between like Genosha and Israel. Um, I actually draw comparisons to Genosha and sort of, um, you know, thinking about Native Americans in the United States and mm -hmm. the way in which, you know, federal government sort of gives them land and sort of says, you know, Mm -hmm. stay on this land. We'll leave you alone. Um, I don't know. That's what I think about. Um, But I think there's various interpretations. And again, I think this sort of, you know, to go back to this point about, you know, the X-Men sort of being this umbrella metaphor for various 
oppressed and marginalized groups, I think, you know, adding those layers to Magneto's character, it further allows for multiple sort of entry points into yeah. this yeah. Um, world. Yeah, that that's true. Um, so we actually mentioned earlier that the series is dominated by, by white male characters. So I guess, like, my question for you is, like, do you think this, like, helps or hinders uh, the sort of idea uh, that, like, X-Men is is trying to sort of, like, advocate for marginalized people? Like, what are your thoughts on that? It's complicated, so... <laughs> it, is, it is complicated, but that's why we started this podcast. So there's a couple things I think about. I think there are missed opportunities in terms of representation. For example, people talk... People love Storm. People love Jean Grey. These mm-hmm. are some really great characters, and especially female characters. And I think... Let's not forget about uh, Jubilee either. Sure. And so, I mean, they have those characters. It would, And so in that way, it would be amazing. You could imagine what they would do with sort of, you know, representation of other, you know, types of difference. And so I feel like by having sort of your main characters be these white men, you sort of... There's missed opportunities for representation. So to this question of, you know, okay, I don't know, imagining especially 1960s, 1970s, what your your comic book reader, your, your target audience looks like. I could imagine that it might be maybe predominantly white men. It seems as if people still think that's what, you know, the world of comic book readers and fans still looks like today. That, mm-hmm. you know, that is the target audience. If you're not, you know, appealing to that audience, then, you know, what's what's the point? Um, so you might imagine that, okay, well, they're going to be more likely, our target audience will be more likely to identify with and empathize with white male characters. And so we will tell these stories about oppression and get them to empathize with being oppressed and marginalized and to make them sort of, you know, think more, invite them to think more critically about sort of the parallels in our, in our society. And I don't know that that happens. I think if anything, what it does is it, you know, to this, you know, going back to this idea of X-Men as an umbrella metaphor, what it does is it makes white men the most privileged group in our society at least straight white men say oh look we can be not oppressed but we can you know we can be victims too yeah sometimes we feel like we don't belong too and that's not really the same thing as being being oppressed uh and i think i think that we'd like to believe oh well they'll they'll sort of you know read into these larger themes and then they'll get it and they'll apply it and i'm probably offending a lot of people right now but i just don't think that that probably happens uh i i could see why that might be a strategic choice um to sort of have these more subversive themes and to sort of package them in a way that makes it maybe more palatable from like a commercial standpoint but in terms of actually helping to sort of educate people about oppression, Mm -hmm. especially like racial oppression, gender oppression in society. I don't know that they've done that. I don't know. Uh, Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I think the idea being like, like you said, 
like a like a white male sees a white male character it's like oh I identify with that character and then sees that character become you know victimized and persecuted and marginalized and he's like wow that that sucks I don't I don't like feeling this way and you would hope that he makes the 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 leap from the white male characters experiencing this to these you know these like characters of color are also experiencing this like oh and, and like make that jump to like oh people of color are also and like like that's the strategic choice being made i don't think it's true uh like i think what happens is like the white male character like the white uh male reader sees the white male character become you know persecuted and marginalized and it's like wow that sucks and then he he feels something when like he's like he's not like he's not like persecuted or marginalized or or, or anything like he just feels like an outsider and like whenever he feels attacked he feels like he he feels victimized but he's a white male so he still has all of these these tools and and structures in place to like exercise his power and so like instead of instead of you know feeling like feeling empathy for for you know people of color he just like he gets that you know victimization mentality and has to sort of like lash out and i think you you've been seeing that a lot recently in the nerd space with reactions to captain marvel and you know reactions to to black panther and you know like gamergate you know uh the like like white men traditionally thought of like being a nerd it's like this is like this is my space this is where I belong and they're taking that sense of belonging and trying to exclude other people which like not not cool (laughs) you know like like I want to hear stories you know about you know about black characters and stories uh you know about about women you know the the Ms. Marvel uh, reboot from a few years ago I really enjoyed and like that's uh, that's a 16 year old Muslim girl I'm like that's a like that was an interesting interesting story you know and so I want to I want to read these kind of stories and watch these kind of movies and if we're excluding these voices we don't get these stories what I often hear from people when you know they'll say that you know Let's talk about like Miss Marvel. They'll say, oh, you know, you're forcing diversity. You know, like you're like this feels forced. Like, why are you trying to like, you know, put a gay character or put a female character? And what is so funny about that is these are all choices. It just it just when people say things like that, it shows that to them the norm, the default is a straight white man Mm -hmm. and anything else is somehow forcing it. There is no default that the default is only what, you know, people create and set it up to be like, there is no, like, I'm not articulating it well, but this is all made up. This Mm -hmm. is all created. This is all, you know, fictional. These, so we're, we make all type, every choice that's made about a character, it's all made up. Mm -hmm. But people, when they say those types of things, it's like, well, 
the default sort of the template is a straight white man and anything else you're sort of tweaking that template but that should be the norm that's that's what's expected Mm -hmm. and that's just a reflection of sort of the society that we live in because that's just not it's all made up it's all yeah (laughs) yeah and i think like you you mentioned like choice a lot there and i think it's like if you don't want to read Ms. Mar, don't don't buy it. Don't read it. Like that's your choice, you know. But don't try and exclude those voices because there are sixteen-year-old Muslim girls out there who read comic books and watch Star Wars, and they and they want to see someone who looks like them. And I don't think it's unreasonable for them to have that desire, you know. And I want to read that story too, you know. I wanna I wanna know what someone else's life is like, even if I, you know, like, even if I can't experience it, like directly um and to take it back to the x-men you know we've talked about you know the the merits and the drawbacks of sort of having predominantly white male characters well let's imagine that they weren't predominantly white male imagine that you know the sort of the main characters truly represented all of the racial and ethnic and gender and you know like diversity and sexuality religion let's imagine that our you know characters better reflected that diversity that we see in the world you could imagine that it would be that the stories they could tell would even be more you know layered Mm -hmm. and nuanced and have more kind of resonance for our real world and that it would be even harder for comic book fans and other people to deny the kind of overtly political messages Mm -hmm. whereas here you know as it is a lot of people can read into X-Men the way we're doing, but it's also possible to not read into it that deep and to say, oh, you other people, you're reading into this more mm-hmm. than what's there. Yeah. And so it makes it possible to not read into it and to not have to pick up on these, you know, broader themes. Um, whereas if you had a much more diverse, you know, set of characters, it'd be harder to ignore and not read into it. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to word this properly, but what I'm thinking is the same way in which, you know, they do tons of, you know, there's been tons of studies and things that generally white people do not see themselves as part of a group. They see themselves as individuals. And so if the idea is the X-Men, you know, as mutants, they're sort of part of, you know, they experience group-based difference, discrimination, inequality by making sort of your, your main X-Men characters, white men, I think it as if you're like a white male reader it's sort of how do i put this you might not always think about it in terms of this group-based difference you might empathize with individual characters like magneto Mm -hmm. charles xavier you know whoever but you don't necessarily have to think about sort of these these dynamics and mechanisms of sort of group-based inequality. You might not read into it as much, mm-hmm. especially if you're an individual who's not used to necessarily seeing themselves as part of a larger group that right. experiences marginalization. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who read these comics and are part of groups that experience that sort of group-based discrimination, I think are much more likely to read into the X-Men and to see it, oh, think about mutants and sort of this metaphor of, oh man, they want to sort of like quarantine them mm-hmm. and sort of mark them and, you know, maybe extinguish them. Mm-hmm. You are going to read into all those themes. Whereas I could see like a, a white male reader. Oh man, look at Magneto's view. Look at, you know, Xavier, look at this individual character and sort of not pay attention to the bigger story of how mutants are being sort of 
yeah. understood and viewed by the larger society. I don't know if any of that made sense, but sense <laughs> sort of a stream of consciousness <laughs> right now. But yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I think that is a good place to end uh, end our conversation about X Men. I'm sure that there'll either be a big comic crossover event at some point in the future or you know the mcu x-men movie which <laughs> i am looking forward to in like five years uh and when that happens we can talk more about the x-men uh but until then uh if you want to reach out to us you can find us uh, on our website at nerdvsnerdpod.com um, you can also email us at nerdvsnerdpod at gmail.com we're also on social media uh, where are we on social media Facebook. Facebook is the main one. Yeah, we do have a Twitter and Instagram account, but we have not been not good so, stewards we, of those accounts. Yeah, we need to we need to fix that. We need to, to yes. follow some people, get some people to follow us. Um, yeah, we've got some homework to do. Yeah. Um, but we're going to give you some homework, too. <laughs> Send us stuff you want to talk about. <laughs> we, ha- we have our schedule set for the rest of the summer, but we're always interested in what you have to say what you think about what we have to say um if there's something that you want us to to view and talk about um yeah uh and we're also on itunes google play stitcher leave us a review and rating because that helps us you know get a bigger audience and hopefully we can talk to more people and you guys can talk to more people yeah yeah should we tease what what's next on the podcast what what yeah. we're going to likely what, talk about what, What's coming up? Um, so coming up this weekend, mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll do an episode this weekend, but the Men in Black International starring mm-hmm. Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth will be yeah. coming out. The and, most beautiful couple in Hollywood. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thor and Valkyrie. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we'll definitely be checking that out and looking to do an episode talking about that movie as well as th- reflecting on sort of the Men in Black movies, mm-hmm. uh, Will Smith's career in sci-fi, maybe dipping our toes into that a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, yeah. So I'm excited. Yeah. And then Spider-Man's coming out soon in about three weeks. Yes. Yeah. So uh, there will definitely be an episode on that because how can we not talk about an MCU movie? <laughs> yeah. So that's what we have in uh, in the pipeline. So, um, Yeah. Check us out. Leave us a, a review, a rating. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, you know, send us send us an email. We want to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's wrap it up, Mike. Yeah. Uh, until our next episode, I'm Mike. I'm Anjali. Yeah, and we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>